You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we are going to be uh, covering Part 4 in our series on Nicholas Meyer as a director, looking at his fourth movie, Volunteers. And we are joined once again by our very special guest, John Tenuto. How's it going, John? Hi guys, thanks for inviting me again. Yeah, so last time that we had you on, after we turned off the the recording equipment, which uh, I, I went back and checked, <laughs> uh, you started talking about your predictions for um, Into Darkness, and as I was watching the movie, I was like, wow, you know, you pretty much nailed everything. I mean, I, it, I, I was very, very impressed. So much so that I, I, I did go back and, and pull out the original recording to see if it might if we might have still been recording, but we weren't, because I, I wanted to uh, show the world how uh, um, analytically minded you are. So, congratulations yeah, was, on that. It, it was, was really it was really impressive. <laughs> well, I was watching it. I like leading up to it. I, I was saying a million times, J.J. Abrams movies never have a like an actual reveal of any of the mystery. There's no actual surprise in his films and let's stay spoiler free for right now right and at the same time i was saying like well there's no way it's gonna be such and such because that would be a really stupid reveal and then you were like here's what i think it is and i was like wow that would be a dumb reveal and that was exactly right I'm glad I, I'm, gl- I'm glad i could guess the dumb reveal <laughs> it was it, it, it's a it's a dumb reveal it is i i disagree but whatever <laughs> Um, but but I but I am very impressed by your uh, your predict predictions. Oh well, enough of into darkness for now. Let's move on to the the movie of the of the week, which is Nicholas Meyer's Volunteers. I didn't volunteer for this. Mm. I was drafted. So, <laughs> so this is this is a movie which was made in 1985. It stars Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, and uh, John Candy. It was written by uh, Ken Levine and David Isaacs, who were a couple guys who worked on MASH and Cheers. And um, in the movie, Tom Hanks plays uh, a guy named Lawrence, who's a rich kid who just graduated from Yale, but he has a huge gambling debt. And um, in order to flee from his debtors, he joins the Peace Corps and flies to Southeast Asia to build a bridge for the locals. And he also builds a bar. So he goes to the Far East and he builds a bar, mm-hmm. like MASH and Cheers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what What he and, and his fellow uh, Peace Corps members don't realize is that uh, the bridge is highly coveted by numerous shady and, and more powerful groups. Well, primarily two groups. One group wanting to, you know, build a capitalist empire on drug money, and the other group wanting to expand the communist empire throughout the, the Far East. So... Two rival interests yeah. that are both pretty stupid. Yeah. So, um, John, what, what are your thoughts on Volunteers? Well, you know, it was fun to watch it again, and then uh, I went back and I read what Nicholas Meyer had written about it in his book, and 
it was nice because some of the things that he mentioned I had not thought about, and some of the things that he mentioned I thought were valid, uh, both criticisms and compliments to the film. So I, I think he himself did a good uh, assessment of his own work, you know, sort of being objective about the film many years later when he wrote, uh, you know, his autobiography of View from the Bridge. To me, this is one of what I, what I call a pay-attention comedy. You know, it's uh, it's not necessarily in the same vein, but like a comedy like Naked Gun, you can't walk out of, you know, you can't be doing something else in the room or walk out of the room and still listen to it and get a lot of the jokes. I mean, you really have to pay attention to it because there's a, either a subtlety to the jokes or they're visual. For whatever reason, these sort of pay-attention comedies, you really have to pay attention. And so I thought this was one of them where, there were jokes that were based on sort of the physical situation. There were jokes that were subtle, um, and and it was and it was kind of, it was sort of an adult. It, it was it was a it was an adult comedy in a way, but uh, you could see sort of the influence of Splash maybe um, into it a little bit. But the uh, I guess the the my biggest problem with the film, although there were things that I really liked about it. Um, was that it, and, and Meyer says this as well in his book, so I felt good about feeling this way about it, was that it, it tries to blend a lot of genres together, even comedy genres. So you get the physical humor, you get almost, uh, almost like Naked Gun kind of humor, whether the part where, uh, which was very surprising, was when, when Tom Hanks looks over and reads the, translation you know that's on the screen that the audience is seeing which yeah. completely breaks the fourth wall and you'd expect that in a kind of a crazy comedy that's not trying to set up a realistic world and this one was and that just seemed sort of out of place in a way it was funny but it was out of place and it was strange um so and he talks about that in his book that you you shouldn't do you shouldn't necessarily blend all of these kinds of genres of comedy together and he did in the film and that may be its its biggest problem because it's got it's a little bit action film, it's a little bit Reaganite cinema where it's got sort of the commentary about the eighties with the you know, the the communism versus capitalism angle and um you know, it's got the twenty year nostalgia cycle because it's an eighties movie about the sixties and it's just got all these different things happening. And uh no matter how good John Candy is and, and no matter how good I think Tom Hanks was very early in his career, not as much in his later career, in my opinion, but uh, this was a good performance by them. They can't sort of save save it in a way because it's um, you know it's such a mishmash of different types of, of genres. Did Did you see the movie when it first came out? I did. I saw it when it first came out in theaters. I also saw it, you know, maybe two or three times. Here and there, you know, when it was on, you know, cable or something like that, and then I, then I watched it again to to prepare for this. So this is probably about the fourth, probably fourth time I've seen it. When when you saw it, when it came out, were you aware that that this was by the guy who made Star Trek Two, or or did that not really register? Oh yeah, no, I, I was aware of that. I, in fact, I probably saw it because of the reason. I think, yeah. um, and. Uh, you know, because I I had I had liked Splash, but you know it wasn't something that would have necessarily driven me to the theater. And I don't think I was as conscious of how good John Candy was back then until maybe about a year or two later. It was really planes, trains, and automobiles that made me say, "Well, this guy is 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 more than just you know a, a 
you know, SCTV, you know, kind of uh, a skit comedian that he's really a great actor. And uh, then I would see anything that John Candy was in, whether it was a good movie or not. And uh, so, you know, this was really Meyer that had sort of brought me to the film and little, little other things like James Horner did the soundtrack and stuff. So it was sort of my Trekkie interest that brought me to the movie. How, how do you think the movie stacks up to Meyer's other work? Well, you know, it's different. It's it's certainly not. It's 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 a comedy, so it's not anywhere near the kind of. Uh, it doesn't have the gravitas of Star Trek Two or The Day After or anything like that. And it, it isn't meant to. So you really have to sort of judge it on its own merits. I mean, there there are moments in there that I think are memorable in the sense that you know, to me, that's one of the things that I I would appreciate about any film if I'm going to remember. Uh, you know, lines or or moments in it, and there are some really good moments in there. When John Candy is shouting when he's inside that helicopter is <laughs> is one of the one of the funniest scenes I think I've seen in, in any film. Um, I like this. I like the little things that Meyer does. The little jokes, like when the eight guys are looking through their you know through their binoculars, and then when they do the the the, the normal film reveal of showing you what they're seeing, you see eight different you know. Um, binoculars, uh, which I think is great, you know, and it sort of plays on, you could see this is made by somebody who loves movies. I mean, there's Lawrence of Arabia stuff in here. There's uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai stuff in here. This is, uh, there's a lot, of, there's Casablanca stuff in there with the bar, with the music and everything, and him and his tuxedo and all that. And, you know, it's made by somebody who loves movies. And so anytime that he plays with what a film is, it usually works except like that moment I was talking about where they break the wall of reality, and he reads the reads the text on the screen. I don't know if that breaks the wall. I mean, just because he knows that the universe has subtitles doesn't mean that he knows that he's in a fictional universe. <laughs> well, what did you think about the movie, Max? Um, I don't think that this movie works particularly well. I, I think that as an artifact about Nicholas Meyer, it's interesting. But overall, it's kind of a mess and but I do kind of appreciate the mess of it. I like that. I like that it's it's you know touching on on capitalism versus communism. But both sides are kind of stupid and evil, and and there's really no hero of the story except for innocence. And I think that all of the westerners in this movie are some way corrupt. I mean, Tom Hanks's character, John Candy's character, Rita Wilson's character. They're all kind of terrible. They all are kind of exploiting those people for various different reasons. I guess I wasn't very fond of the movie. Um, I, I think ultimately it's one of Meyer's lesser works. Uh, obviously, it's his most you know comedic film. Um, but I don't think he really knows how to to handle some of the the types of humor that that he uses. You know, I mean, like like the the subtitle joke. While it's a funny joke, I think it's poorly executed you know well the it happens sort of twice mm -hmm. and there's that delay on the subtitles yeah which is a really strange choice and like when it's happening it took me a moment like while they were doing it to realize what they were doing because mm -hmm. i was like are they leaning over to read the subtitles right right really and like i was like i guess they are like that you can't have that kind of delayed reaction when you're telling a joke. It has to hit or it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And it was just not edited or performed correctly. 
And it's like Meyer is a, a really funny guy. I mean, you look at Time After Time or The Voyage Home or, or you know, his writing, and, and there's plenty of stuff in there which is very funny, but I think it's more of a sort of witty, highbrow funny, highbrow humor that, that he, he excels at and, and some of the slapstick stuff. It's kind of it's, it's like Hitchhiker's Guide, where in, in radio and in prose, it works exceptionally well. But when you get actors to perform it, it kind of doesn't function in that arena. It's mm. sort of the same kind of thing. Maybe that's what it is. Um, but I think a lot of this, you know, like the, the idea of, you know, doing an all-out comedy um, was really uh, a direct response to the fact that he had just made the day after. You know, I mean, in his book, and we talked about this last week, you know, he didn't want to do the day after he... Uh, he felt obligated to do it, you know, morally. And um, he was looking for an out for that movie. And when he ended up, you know, having to spend a year of his life making it, I think he, he needed a release. And, and doing a, a screwball comedy was that release for him. If you didn't know that this wasn't written by Meyer, there were things, there are things that you could say, oh, okay, right, that, that, that looks like him. You know, like you know, you do have a sort of Kirk Spock McCoy thing, right? With Lawrence, Tom, and Kate. In fact, Kate is in the is, is McCoy literally in the sense that she's a medical personnel. Tom is an engineer, a man of science like Spock, and and Lawrence is that uh, you know womanizing. If we're going to be you know stereotypical about Kirk, the sort of womanizing, rule breaking person. He doesn't have the nobility of Kirk, of course, at all. Though the hero- heroism, mm-hmm. at least initially. Of Kirk, but um, and Tom you, know, you gets have that mind sort of element. You, you have the non-interference notion of Star Trek, right? You've got yeah. the, the, you know, the whole idea of you know we shouldn't come here. The speech she makes at the end is a Star Trek speech, right, for the Prime Directive. We we, we didn't come here to change you. We came here to help you. And and then and then of course the sort of the sort of politics of it, uh, in some ways, seems like Meyer's politics. But on the other hand, it doesn't. I mean. What Max had said was true. I think they make the communists look ridiculous. They make the capitalists look ridiculous. But they, they, but they make the the sort of the the hippie '60s movement look ridiculous, and also the elitist, you know, sort of conservative movement look ridiculous too. So it's a weird film if you look at it being made smack in the middle of the Reagan era, mm-hmm. where a lot of films really said the same message as I think the Reagan presidency. So you get Or they took a side on it. They either they either said the same thing or they took a different side. But this one sort of I I was sort of I guess when I was looking at it again and being more aware of sort of Reaganite cinema theory and all of that now than I certainly was back when I saw this in the in nineteen eighty five when that idea didn't even exist. Um I was sort of thinking, well, this film's going to come down on one side or the other, and more likely against, you know, the, that, the, the Reagan, you know, uh, rhetoric. And mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't. It, 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 it mostly avoids it. But when it does, when it does make any kind of commentary, it sort of makes the commentary that both of these philosophies have a ridiculous element to them. I think I think the message of this movie is, you know, essentially that of the prime directive, you know, non-interference. It's like we're going to go in there and quote unquote help these people and in the end make things way way worse for them for them. And you know, the 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 arc or whatever of of the characters is 
trying to is coming to that realization and trying to fix the problem. But which is why I think you know the the if I my history of the film is if I'm remembering it right, the initial reaction of the Peace Corps itself was that they were not happy with the film and wanted changes in the script, which weren't going to happen. You know, knowing Meyer and so on. You know, not going to bow to that kind of pressure, but. Uh, the, the person who had objected was replaced, and the the person who came in was more favorable towards the movie. But in many ways, I mean, this, the film is an indictment of the Peace Corps and the fact that it wasn't. An, it, it was and is, despite its great intentions, basically bringing technologies to people who aren't ready for them. So they're saving them on the one hand. Um, but saving them for what? And also, who's inviting them in? You know, who who's inviting the Peace Corps in? Is it the corrupt government of this co- this country who isn't helping its own people, who mm-hmm. just does want this new technology for themselves eventually, or is it the people themselves who's really calling it in? I mean, it it it, it doesn't deal with that as directly as it might have if it was not a comedy and was more of a social. Uh, you know, metaphor of some kind or a drama or whatever, but it is certainly there, I think, the idea of what is the role of the Peace Corps. And, you know, in the 80s, that kind of thing would have been a, would have been a, a message that resonated and was part of the zeitgeist, you know, the whole, mm. are we a country of selfishness or are we a country of selflessness? Well, there's also, like, the, 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 the more subtle form of, of, of benevolence to, you know, foreign countries. Uh, I mean, the IMF constantly gives countries money that they can only spend to hire people from you know first world countries to come build factories and it's a very subtle manipulation but it's done all the time and the peace corps has been co-opted by a lot of various less than noble entities over the years and you know I this think it was an interesting yeah, interesting idea in the film that could have been mined a little bit more but, but looking at it from the flip side, you know, and the idea that, you know, and I, I do still strongly believe that, that the the reason why he did his most lighthearted movie uh, right after the day after is because... The day after it? <laughs> yeah. Is because, um, you know, he, he needed a, a release. But but even within that, you know, he you know, he wasn't going to do something like, you know, some some, like irrelevant piece of fluff he was airplane three right he wasn't going to do like a romantic you know just a straight up romantic comedy or or whatever it is you know he he was going to do something which what did have a a message behind it you know and and having a political message behind it seems to make sense for uh for for someone like meyer i don't think that he would have the patience right i mean i don't think that he could be into it if it was right that simple Mm mm-hmm I mean, I mean, even if he was trying to keep it light, I mean, you can't maintain interest if it isn't at some point, you know, engaging your critical sensibilities. Right. Reading View from the Bridge, it's clear that he believed in mm-hmm. the script, you know, even though it wasn't very critically acclaimed or anything like that and it didn't do well at the box office, he still thinks that he made a good movie. It certainly holds up better than most forgotten 80s movies. So, um, you know, we, we've talked about how uh, the, the message of the film is kind of Star Trek in nature. Um, but I think also the way that the message is told, you know, uh, is, is Star Trek-like in, in the sense that, you know, Star Trek uses sci-fi in order to um, 
disguise its social commentary, you know, and I think this movie is doing the same thing with uh, comedy. You know, I mean, you could you could easily go in and watch this movie and just sit down and enjoy it as a as a a, a little screwball thingy, but um, you know, if you do want to dig deeper, there is a, a message underneath. So I thought that was kind of cool. And yeah, I mean, I would see why I could see why Meyer was 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 attracted to the script. I mean, I think it was a good script, and um, you know, I I think it's not a bad film. I think he's he he's right in the sense that if they, I don't remember the marketing on this, but if the marketing was this is Splash Two, um, which appears to be what the marketing was, well, then it was no wonder it wasn't very successful at the box office because there would have been no reason it wouldn't have been since it was coming right off of that. Um, you know, and the audience isn't the audience for Splash is not going to understand the context and references of this film. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also kind of one of those first, in a way, those first postmodern comedies. You know, you know that that is very dependent. Is is funnier if you know these references to the other things, and if you get the fact that it's winking at you. What, while you're watching it, you know, it, the, for me, again, the problem is that it's trying to blend different types of comedy genres, and that's, it's not as successful when it does that. Well, isn't the, uh, the, the referential nature also something that he talks about in the book, and how, um, you know, like the, the kids who are going to see it, who they were marketing it to, didn't get the references, and therefore didn't like the movie as much as, you know, people his own age would. And... Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering how many of those went over my head since I'm even younger than the people watching it in 1985. So uh, as far as um, other Star Trek people who worked on this, uh, Meyer brought on a, a previous collaborator and a future collaborator uh, in his Star Trek uh, efforts. The The person who worked on Star Trek II with him was James Horner, who did the score. And uh, just like all of other James Horner scores, you can hear <laughs> references to uh, his previous work. I mean, there was definitely a uh, a little bit of Khan's uh, intro going on in there, and a few a few other uh, little notes here and there. Yeah, I mean, what do you guys think of James Horner? Are you, are you fans? And now I know Meyer kind of discovered him with Star Trek Two, and then he he blew up after that. Yeah, I mean, I I you know I don't. Uh... I think when you take a look at any, you know, any composer's career uh, and take a look at it, there's there are there's changes that occur over the course of their careers. So you take whoever, Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, um, and you can tell immediately in a way the best composers, you can tell immediately that it's their their stuff. Now, we could say, oh, well, then that's derivative or not. I mean, we could get into that notion, um, but certainly James Horner's music, at least until he gets to the Titanic era, his his 80s stuff has a very um, consistent feel to, to it. From from you know the film he did right before Star Trek II wasn't it the Battle Beyond the Stars or something like that was that what it was called I think mm-hmm. um, until until you know we even through Willow um, in the late 80s or whatever you get this whole sort of body of work and they're distinct enough so i mean if i listen to willow it is not listening to star trek 2 uh or or if you listen to volunteers it isn't listening to willow per se but there are moments where the music sounds very similar um or it certainly has a certain feel to it 
Um, mm. And I think, you know, for Star Trek II, Horner's music was brilliant, uh, you know, very nautical, uh, uh, you know, it was different uh, than any kind of thing that you would expect out of that, which is, which was great. I, I, thought, I thought it was interesting in terms of the comedy stuff, how uh, a lot of the uh, themes which he is sort of known for using in a dramatic context when placed in a comedic context, you know, sort of uh, counter the uh, what's going on on screen. Uh, I thought that that was... I thought I thought it worked pretty well, although I'm I'm I mean I I like some of James Horner's stuff, but some of it I, I think is a little um, a, a little too derivative and also too derivative of not just himself but other people's work as well. What? <laughs> what you saying? Um, the other uh, Star Trek collaborator who would work with him again on Star Trek VI was uh, his editor Ronald Roos. Um, I guess from what I understand, they were like. They go kind of far back. They were friends back in the day. Ronald Roos, I mean, you know, in, in this movie, I, I can't say that I really noticed the editing too much, but in Star Trek VI, I thought that movie was extremely well cut together. Yeah. Um, one of the best edited of all the Star Trek movies. So Two and six are oh, that exceptionally is, well yeah, edited. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 you know, the editing on the ending of Star Trek VI is some of the best editing I've ever seen in any film, to tell you the truth. I mean, I, th- I mean that objectively, that I remember yeah. that. I mean, sure, I'm sure everybody does if, sitting in the theater. If you saw it in the theater, the fresh first time you saw it, um, you know, when that Klingon ship uh, blows up, the bird of prey, they, the, 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 the exaltation was like something I had never seen before, not even when the Death Star blew up. Yeah. yeah, and 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 I and of a lot of that is due to that editing, that pacing. Mm-hmm. But the, the whole that finale, yeah, I the mean, whole like incredible. last half hour, like the battle, I mean, like those models do not look super great, but that editing makes every impact feel exceptionally real. Is basically from the time they leave Spock's quarters to the end of the movie, and and even I mean the beginning of the movie, the way that that movie starts with you know credits and then an explosion. I mean. That's that's great, and I don't you know, know if that was his choice. Well, it might not have been his <laughs> choice, but but it was it was there, you know. And um, the just just have that that movie is different from a lot of the from most of the other ones in that it's not like one group of people doing one, you know, set of things. It's it's told over multiple planets and stuff like that, and you're constantly cross cutting. Not just between the crew, but then also between the the politicians and the Klingons, and and everything that happens makes sense in context and doesn't feel like a non sequitur reference for the purpose of you know building up some sort of a spectacle, mm-hmm. like some random Star Trek movie currently in theaters that I don't remember the name of. Yeah, not necessarily sure. I agree with that, but that's okay. Um, I agree with it in regards to Star Trek Six. Anyway, <laughs> um, John, any. Uh, Final thoughts on volunteers? Well, you know, I think it's a good example of a of a nineteen eighties, you know, um, comedy. Uh, um, I think it, uh, it, it as long as it gives you something to to think about, which I think the film does with its theme, and and it has moments that I really that I'll remember, you know, that I still remember, and looked forward to seeing again when I saw it you know, to, to prepare for today, like the helicopter scene is just, I mean, it's a, such a simple thing. 
and it shouldn't be that funny, but it is that funny, I think. And um, you know, just little throwaway lines, I think that are great. Like the "I'm going to use your bone as a pencil case." I mean, it's, it's little. I mean, it's, it adds. There, there, there's lines in there that are really, really good. And I think that uh, you know, I, I wouldn't. It's you know, way above spies like us. You know, uh, um, yeah. in, in many ways. Uh, you know, but is it? It certainly is not. You know, his most successful film at all, but. Yeah, I admire that he tried something different. I, I mean, I so who wouldn't? You know, I I, I teach you know uh, introduction to sociology, you know, as the bulk of my classes, and um, you know, it is always refreshing to try something new to, to to challenge yourself, and and even if you don't, you aren't as successful at it as you might have hoped you would have been, uh, or even if you were as successful as you hoped it would have been, but others don't appreciate um, that or think that. It doesn't really matter in the sense because you got a chance to to try something new and to grow a little bit and then to to learn from that. So I think, you know, uh, I certainly don't think it's a waste of anyone's time to see the film. It's not a bad film at all. It's just not. It needed, um, you know, maybe in a way it needed a, someone who was a little more experienced with comedy. But then, yeah, I don't think you would have necessarily got some of the performances you did if they had a different director. And you wouldn't have that sort of efficiency of storytelling and efficiency of comedy that I think you see in a lot of his films. So, you know, whatever deficiencies he had in never having done a straight comedy before um, were offset by the other sort of, you know, abilities and talents that he brought. So, um, you know, you may not have had that with a different director who had more experience in comedy. So I would recommend it certainly for any John, just any John Candy fan um, and and any fan of Myers to to certainly at least see the film. Yeah, it's certainly, as a comedy from a non-comedy person, holds up way better than 1941. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a terrible mess of a movie by a guy who was at the time making only solid fantastic movies mm-hmm. and this is a pretty good movie from a guy who makes fantastic movies significantly better than 1941 yeah i'd agree with that you know it wasn't it wasn't terrible by any stretch of the imagination but well if I'll, you stretched your imagination far enough you could get it to terrible okay but but i don't i don't think that it, it meets uh meyer's usual high standard and um, ultimately, uh, I, while I appreciate what it was that he was trying, I think he fails on most levels. So I can't, can't say that I, 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 uh, I like it, but I, I do appreciate it. John, you're going to be at a, <laughs> at a con this weekend in Chicago, correct? Yes. Uh, the uh, Creation Entertainment is having a, uh, a really great... Uh, convention especially for next gen fans and uh ds9 fans uh this weekend in rosemont which is about you know, about 30 minutes or so from chicago and um yeah they're going to have a reunion of the of all the, of, of everyone from uh next gen from the main regular you know seven season cast and um i'm going to uh, i'm really thrilled to be able to do three different uh presentations there one each day so I'm, I'm looking forward as a fan to uh to go and see all of the great actors and uh and, and my fellow fans and I'm, I'm really excited to share um some brand new information in fact i'm doing a talk that i've never done anywhere i'm going to be showing these pictures from Rathacon that, that have really not been seen by anybody before so that'll be great nudes 
I, I really wanted to see that, but um, I, I think they sold out for both Saturday and Sunday. I, I don't know if there's tickets still available for Friday, um, but I don't know. I, I'm, I think I might have to. I think I probably have to work on Friday. But if I don't, I will come on Friday. But if you have tickets, be sure to, to don't don't use don't don't do what I didn't do. Don't do what Donnie don't does. <laughs> You know, don't 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 look at the schedule and be like, "What, John Tenuto? He was what? He wasn't in. He, he wasn't even in Enterprise." You know, that's screw him. I'm going to go buy some stuff. Be sure you you're in that auditorium when John starts talking because uh, he's going to drop some knowledge, and you're not going to want to miss it, miss it. So uh, yeah. or miss it. Oh, thank you. But yeah, uh, as always, you can find us at our other website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, or on Twitter at ComTrackStars. And you're on Twitter too, right, John? Uh, yes, it's just a J and then my last name, so it's J Tenuto, uh, J T E N U T O. Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, we we will be back next week for part five in our Nicholas Meyer as a director series. We're going to be talking to Marcelo from Framed Panda about the Deceivers. <laughs> <laughs>